0: hello and welcome to the leadership and insurance podcast this is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business we talk to insure tech leaders and founders innovators and change agents from the insurance industry we also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry such as organizational psychologists performance coaches and investment professionals anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future Hello and welcome to the Leave Insurance podcast. This is a good one. This is Sid from Arbol, who's the CEO and founder. Um, Arble's a platform for parametric coverage, um, which allows them to address gaps in the insurance market in the traditional market, and I thought it was really interesting. It was a great conversation with Sid. Uh, He's very patient with me whilst we sort through the kind of technicalities of things like smart contracts and parametrics. And yeah, parametrics is something we've talked about a lot in this podcast, and you know, it's something that clearly the the, the market uh, is investing in, um, and we're seeing lots of big wins. Um, But um, Arbol are kind of parametric agnostic. They've not come up with one solution, although obviously they've got solutions for energy, agriculture, crop. Um, If there's a good data set, they can produce the parametric solution for it. Um, And I think that's something that we speak about a lot on this podcast. It's about kind of trust. It's about addressing gaps in the market. It's pricing insurance differently, and it's creating assurance which is appropriate for the consumer and the customer today. It's interesting that Sid comes from outside the insurance industry. So we talk a little bit about that and and his kind of experience with financial markets, Um, and then we get to dip into kind of alternative capital. Um, This is a really kind of wide-ranging podcast. It was great fun. Um, Thank you once again, Sid, for being a guest. This is the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. So, good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky to be joined by Sid from Arbor Markets. Um, Sid, good morning for me. It's good morning for you, actually, I believe. Um, how are you? Yeah,
1: I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure.
0: No, not at all. Not at all. Well, look, before we get into the kind of uh, details of parametrics, which is a big foundation of uh, obviously what the business does, if you'd be kind enough to introduce markets. So, for those of the guys out there that don't understand or know the business, um, yeah, it'd be great to get your take on what, what you guys do.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, Arbel is a you know platform for parametric coverage. What that means is uh, clients can uh, reduce risk of all types of different uh, you know external calamities from climate risk to price risk uh, using uh, data to make the payouts rather than an adjuster or someone from an insurance company coming to your farm or business to assess the damage. Mm-hmm. So you know using different types of data sets like weather data, climate data, price data, we're able to offer you know clients protection that has no claims, no paperwork, no hassles that typically characterizes the traditional insurance experience hmm. the platform is run entirely uh, via smart contracts and an ai pricing engine and so the entire process uh, you know is automated from start to finish and really enables a, a a very clean digital experience for the customer while also you know helping cover many types of risks that the traditional insurance industry has been unable to or unwilling to provide enough uh, capital for. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for that. And um, as, a, as I sort of jokingly said, Bonero, I'm always, you know, I'm always impressed by how succinct those things get down, but that's what happens when you go through the raises and uh, <laughs> actually after you do it, you know, six thousand times <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so thank you. I wanted to ask you, like, parametrics um, is something we we talked about a couple of times on on the podcast and from different angles, but I, I'm interested in the platform perspective. So just for sort of clarity. How does that work who's bringing the business is is a broker bringing a proposition or is a client coming directly and saying i can't get insurance who's coming onto the platform from that perspective
1: yeah it's very industry dependent so one of the great things about parametric uh, insurance and we also do these things as derivatives so that's a legal distinction not a product distinction Mm -hmm. but One of the great things about parametric insurance is how scalable it is. So many similar products with some small tweaks can be applicable for anything from the farming industry to the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. So as an example, you know, uh, too much rain in a farming park can be bad for the crop, but too much rain can also ruin your vacation on the coastline. So um, there's a lot of scale to this whole business. And so... When we work uh, on these different products, the products might be similar, but the, it's where the sales channel is very different. So in agriculture in the US where we got our start, a lot of the business is via crop insurance agents who are selling these as supplementary or um, you know, um, add-on products, mm-hmm. or they're uh, filling a gap in the federal subsidized crop insurance system, which is a big thing here in the US. Um, and in many parts of the world, it's really, um, you cannot bypass the agent networks. So you, we basically make the platform as convenient for the agents as possible. Mm-hmm. In a market like energy, the clients are larger, more sophisticated, and it's often direct client business. Yeah. It could be a wind farm, which is looking to manage its risk of wind speed. Or it could be a traditional utility looking to manage its temperature risk because if temperatures spike and people run more air conditioning they're going to have losses because they need to buy power in the spot market Mm -hmm. um in other things like uh, hospitality we're working with different channel partners like where you book vacation rental homes and you can put in some rainfall cover so that all that money you spent on a vacation home doesn't go to waste when you know you have rain every single day of your trip so it's very industry dependent. And so it's a mix of agents and brokers. And that's where the flexibility comes in As we try to make sure that the process is as simple as possible for a really wide set of clients.
0: Mm-hmm. So is it sort of safe to say that with the platform realistically, if, if, if a suitable metric can be found and the right conditions can be found, you know, you're completely sort of line of business agnostic from the insurance point of view. Absolutely. If there is an objective data set that, uh,
1: you know, is trustworthy and has a long enough history, we will, uh, we will look to write a contract on it. And as data sets get better and more granular, we're finding that, you know, there are many areas where, you know, we're just building new markets. That's the, the great thing about Arbol is that a lot of our clients have never transacted in uh, any type of in cover that they're buying from us. And it's just because we are uh, at the forefront of a lot of these data sets and are able to price these very varied risks mm-hmm. uh, that you know we are able to deploy products that you know people have not even experienced before. And the whole idea here is to broaden the ado- adoption of parametric insurance. So it's not just trying to chase the same traditional business, really sort of think outside the box and build new uh
0: new markets Mm. i I mean that that was one of my first questions i was going to ask you and i I think we've touched on it you know there is that because there's an element of this where you're filling a gap right so we were saying about subsidies you know there's there's a gap in coverage so we're buying that um but is it a kind of a a sort of new opportunity and i appreciate i'm going to roll i'm going to roll two into one here (laughs) <laughs> the kind of concept's been around for quite a long time, but it appears to be having its its, its moment. So a kind of, it was a two part question, really. Are we filling a gap or is it a new opportunity? And then why do, why is it now? Why is parametrics why kind of really blowing up now, do you think? Yeah, uh,
1: so we are doing both, filling gaps where there are, or building new uh, markets. Um, and even when, you know, when we say we are filling a gap, it's because the traditional insurance industry is unwilling to or unable to write risks uh, to cover those situations. So even in that case, you are filling a gap that nobody else was. It's not like you're pushing anyone out. Um, so you know, in, in, in certain types of crop insurance or many types of uh, climate risk insurance like hurricanes, the, even if you can get coverage, the deductible is huge. Yeah. And so when you're trying to you know, insure yourself, you're really still facing a very large bill if something happens. Mm. The other big problem is, and, and this is often you know, not appreciated as much. You know, when we were starting marble, the first thing everyone would talk about is basis risk. I mean, I would hear that phrase all the time about parametric. What people forget is how much basis risk is in uh, traditional insurance. You have a process where something happens to you, and then you you might get paid six months, a year, year and a half later. We were talking about home renovations before we started the podcast. We had a flood when we did ours, uh, of course, on the like the tail end of it. It took a year and a half to get the claim settled, mm. and we had no idea how much we would get paid on that. On a much larger scale, uh, with COVID, you have 25,000 plus lawsuits happening all over the country. And you have had a major, you know, many examples, but a major department store here went bankrupt because the insurers refused to pay. And so nobody talks about enough about that basis risk. To me, that's a massive basis risk. You don't know when you will get paid and you don't know how much you'll get paid. That's a problem. At least with parametrics, you can point to a data set and say, hey, this is the data. Sure, it may not match exactly what's happening to me, but I know I'm gonna get paid this much in two weeks or three weeks. And that kind of comfort is extremely important, especially post COVID, where we had a huge amount of disruption in the insurance system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the other question, which is like, you know, why is it now the moment? A big part of this is that the data sets are finally granular enough, right? You, you, you know, many weather data sets, you know, say 10, 15, 20 years ago, could have been a hundred mile by hundred mile grid. A lot can happen within, you know, a hundred mile by hundred mile rainfall grid. Now you can get down to a kilometer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we run programs that use sensors all over farming equipment to get it even more specific to the farmer's experience,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or you know, use uh, temperature measurements that are right uh, as close to the site as you can. These mm-hmm. kinds of things allow. The basis risk to shrink considerably and give the customer comfort that this data set will match my experience. So, there is a lot of advancement happening here where it makes parametrics what we think is they're at the cusp of what e commerce was like in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Digital insurance is like brick and mortar, and parametric insurance will really take that digital experience from start to finish. You can have a digital insurance product at the forefront where you buy it. That's nice, but to truly change the way you know you have a trillion dollars of crops that are estimated to be uninsured globally. You have hundreds of billions in losses each year from climate risk, which is uninsured. These are massive gaps. This is not just a small uh, you know problem we're trying to address. And you see the climate you know, sort of issues getting worse and worse, the floods in Germany right now, or the Mm. east out west here, there's a lot of clients with inadequate or no coverage for such events. Mm. Um, And parametric insurance is going to be the easiest way to enable broad scale adoption of insurance, which allows you to uh, manage your risk Mm. and plan for the future and, you know, adapt to climate change, not just wait for disaster aid after the fact. So, yeah. to make parametric insurance worse, is uh, uh, to, to, to make it work is a crucial
0: thing that uh, you know, the, we need to solve. Mm. Mm. It's, it, I mean, it's so interesting to me because I, I think I've been insurance for 15 years, I, you know, worked on the carrier side before I came into headhunting and you know, the continuous conversation was just on a simple example was business interruption. Every time we were hit with a big event, um, you know, a like hurricane, it would always be, the language was always that people hadn't bought business interruption or they hadn't bought enough of it or they didn't didn't understand the coverage. And I felt the language, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is the intention, but I always felt the language at times like that were putting it onto the consumer and they were making it the consumer's fault. Whereas I felt that there was just a lack of simplicity because the data isn't there to say, you know, how do how much cover is appropriate for you to get back on your feet if you don't know how long the time scale of your claim is going to take for payment or whether you're going to get paid or how much you're going to get paid um, whereas if you can kind of define those metrics and it may not pay out as much or it may not pay out but, it, but you know exactly what it is and you know most businesses are it's about playing ahead so There's something in the simplicity of it that seems that it's been missing from the language or or the kind of ecosystem of insurance previously.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see insurance contracts that are hundreds of pages long and it'll have exceptions related to everything from volcanoes to, uh, you know, pandemics, which Mm of course we can perform here. Mm -hmm. Um, Our contracts are, you know, a couple pages long and you're done. It's very clear what will trigger your payout and what will not. And, uh, you know, when you, you were talking about business interruption, I mean, there, there's claims going on uh, from, I think, Hurricane Irma, which was like three, four years ago, still
2: yeah.
1: uh, a lot. Lar- you know, we, we are still sorting out stuff from back then. Mm-hmm. If you're a large corporate client, you just go along with these things. When you're a small business, this can become a, you know, life and death uh, for your business. I mean, we, we, you can't have a system where you're waiting this long. And once you leave the U.S. and Europe area, I mean, the insure insurance penetration collapses, and you have lots of uninsured because there is no way to run that in a tradi- uh, you know via the traditional
0: channels. Mm-hmm. As a result of it being sort of different, and you know, we know what parametrics are. We're in the space. Um, but and and I appreciate you're not necessarily in the selling of it because you're creating products for people marketplaces for maybe brokers to distribute or or obviously the end consumer the sophisticated consumer is coming to you directly so obviously they know what it is do you you feel that there's a bit of a education piece when kind of trying to attract business because it is different and it's kind of uh, I don't know have you have you had any feedback around that is it because it, it seems like a no-brainer solution, which always, to me, is the best solution. But as a business owner, you know, I'm just thinking, I had an office where um, the internet went down intermittently for six months. And um, I don't know how we would have got coverage, but let's say, basically, my office was out of action. Um, I basically lost two staff as a result of it because they just got so frustrated they left. And, and that wasn't necessarily claimable, but effectively, I was out of business. And all I needed was to be able to get out of my contract and, and money to go to a new office, but I just didn't have it at the time. So I sort of know firsthand how crippling it is. But, um, you yeah, know, the education piece, um, I don't know if I would have understood parametrics if you tried to sell it to me. So is that something that ever comes up as, a, as an issue? Absolutely. Um,
1: it's It's a process for sure. Mm. And the great thing is that the consumer has become much more aware of, Um, these issues and alternative ways to solve it Mm -hmm. Um, and often what helps us out is one they've had uh, not a great experience with the traditional insurance industry Um, uh, and especially COVID really sort of brought that to the fore Um, and uh, you know I think that in many cases the customer is also a lot more open-minded because there may not be any coverage available so it's something that's there Mm-hmm. That said, it is, you know, we, we try to go for first the lowest hanging fruit, right? So where, where is it easier? So in the, one of the reasons we start in the U.S. crop system, which uh, apart from me being a commodities trader in my past life, was that uh, the U.S. government actually runs uh, a multi-billion dollar parametric insurance program for uh, just pasture and hay. So this is one crop where the farmer gets paid if the rainfall is too low Mm -hmm. um, it spread like wildfire and that's a great example of where you know this program you know started in 2007 and by 2015 it goes live and then it triples its size in just a year or two. Mm. So what it showed was how much potential there is once there is an understanding but the success of that program helps with the education of all other programs because a lot of the agents are familiar with it. It's sold in like 25 states here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The other uh, way we try to really sort of narrow that gap is to work with uh, you know better and better data sets and to show that you know you can get paid on output, not just on weather, right, on the farm side. Mm-hmm. With other situations like uh, in energy you know the needs are as you said there the clients are more sophisticated but also the needs are growing extremely fast mm. so you obviously have a big problem of heat spikes and temperature drops that are can be catastrophic to your utility business i think there was a stat that when the temperatures dropped in texas this fed nine utilities either had to declare bankruptcy or almost did wow. right so this is a serious problem that they have to address and the growth of renewables is especially interesting because that just introduces a really new set of uh, weather risks, whether it is cloud cover or wind speed. So we're seeing a lot of traction there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in other industries, you know, we, uh, we try to go for where the education level, uh, education required is the lowest at first and then Mm -hmm. grow from there. So for me, I mean, travel insurance is a great example. I always thought that, you know, for me, the biggest fear always is that I'm just going to be sitting on a rainy beach. It's just, um, you know, you can cover for all the really outside cases, but that's a big one. And that's something we're working on in a number of different areas. And I think that things like that, where it's intuitively clear what, you know, is the risk that helps. Some of the stuff you mentioned around uh, business interruption is definitely, uh, you know, needed. I think there it's a matter of really, uh, often it's a matter of teaching the brokers mm. and the agents because a lot of people actually never deal with their insurance company directly. And that's where the, the, you know, where it takes time. The, the agent is generally dealing with the customer, the retail agent. They are the ones who need to be um, kind of educated. Once you educate them in a simple way when they get it, and they know that obviously they're incentivized because they'll get commission. Mm-hmm. Then they have a sense for, okay, these are the customers who might actually use this. But what I often find is that's where the awareness is really lacking is, you know, you, you're almost never dealing with a customer directly as an insurance outfit, right? You're dealing with um, an, a, the retail agent or someone like that. They need to be made aware. And I've seen many examples of where there'll be a parametric Uh, option for something that they can't find coverage for in the, in in the traditional market, but they are not even aware that exists.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: We have a lot of webinars. We have a lot of these kinds of things on almost on a continuous basis, put out new products, have webinars, get the agents aware that this is out there. Then they, they actually are quite good at understanding. Okay. These are the six clients I have that could really use this product. Mm -hmm. Like it needs to be, you know,
0: uh, proactively presented to them. Mm, yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it, yeah, I can see that. It's, it's a one-to-many approach with the kind of education piece. And it, you mentioned the pandemic had kind of opened up people's minds a little bit to kind of what their coverage is. And I think there's been a focus on their coverage, but what has the pandemic done to your business? Is it has, has there been any direct kind of applications? And I was really interested to see whether it had led to kind of the creation of new products, specifically over this time. Uh, well we've been creating new products uh, at a
1: rapid pace but that's just because you know we've been growing very fast mm-hmm. um, we're on track to grow you know um, you know, a couple orders of magnitude this year basically mm-hmm. so we you know we're seeing uh, a massive demand growth year on year I think some of that is Due to the pandemic, but a lot of it is just due to products being available that are just not easily available in the market, and at a price that is acceptable. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of it, and that comes because we also bring in the other piece of the puzzle, which is the capital, uh, which is not uh, traditional reinsurers' capital.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, the other problem we mentioned before, but I mean, the parametric problem was a lot. A lot, a lot of these products were extremely expensive. The cost of operations was high, the capital cost was high, and by the end of it, the consumer is paying a price that, you know, it's not going to be a repeat customer, and it's going to be uh, hobbled from the start. With regards to the pandemic, I think it's more that the awareness uh, uh, and the uh, sort of comfort with digital solutions has increased dramatically. And while we don't have any products directly related to the pandemic per se, it's that the the customers have become uh, very aware that a digital solution where they get paid quickly and transparently has a lot of value. So, you know, we've come out with a ton of new products in the ag and energy space over the last year. That's less due to the pandemic, it's more just due to
0: demand. Mm-hmm. On, on new products, um, I, I think I wrote this question down, but I don't, I don't know if it's a very well-written question because I said, you know, I was gonna ask you something about the simplicity um, but I think that implies that it's simple to <laughs> do the mechanics of what you do. And, and certainly I don't, I don't think that is, but is there something about the structure of what you're offering in a payment space that enables you to be faster in terms of kind of developing new products?
1: Yeah. I mean, um, well, we have obviously, as you might imagine, considerably less bureaucracy when it comes to building uh, sure. software and products. Uh, one thing that helps a lot is uh, for us, product is code, right? It's, mm-hmm starts and ends with with smart contracts that auto manage the process. Mm -hmm. So once we conceive of a product and we think that there's enough demand, we can encode it and then it sort of self-manages itself. So, you know, uh, our products are really varied. It could be, you know, uh, something that pays out based on crop yield data, something that pays on obviously rainfall or temperature data. We've been having a lot of great traction on uh, products based on wind speed data. Uh, and uh, we'll soon be coming out with products based on everything from cloud cover to uh, snowfall.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the, the end goal is to make sure that, and a lot of the work initially is to make sure that the product will match the user's experience, uh, losses, right? Mm-hmm. Without actually having to verify those losses, but something that, uh, the triggers and thresholds really match reality. And that's where, you know, we have a very experienced team in this part of the space. I mean, we just, uh, we focus a lot on that aspect. But once that is conceived of, then the marginal cost of operating a product or like deploying it is extremely low. And that's because we started with this whole idea of smart contracts and just automation on all levels. Mm-hmm. And then the pricing, we don't have underwriters uh, underwriter underwriting staff. Our only underwriter is this AI underwriter that just kind of. Prices all deals simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So we're not pricing risks in an isolated way, which it can cause problems when you manage a book. Um, yeah. me and some of the team, you know, we have experience managing systematic trading books from the Wall Street days, and we try to bring that risk management uh, to you know the insurance side, which is not as used accustomed to it. Mm-hmm. And so the pricing also plugs in directly. Uh, seamlessly, um, once a product is built,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: and yeah, the goal is to do as soon as we see that there might be demand for a type of product, we can build it, deploy it, and all of that can happen within um, maybe two or three weeks.
0: Mm-hmm. There's there's so much I want to pick up off there, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go out of order for a second. Certainly for for the smart contract piece, is that do you, do you think there's a because smart contracts are getting talked about in insurance. Um, I don't know if anyone's truly deploying it. Do you think there's a misunderstanding about what it represents or or, or do you think some people are sort of jumping on um, the back of some good tech because it makes good press? I I don't know, I just wanted to get your, because especially because you're, you you know, you've come from outside of the insurance industry. Um, Do you think there is maybe a misunderstanding or purposeful misunderstanding of it all?
1: Yeah, I, I I agree. I think, well, there's, there's a, there's a contingent, which is uh, where there's a, there's definitely a lot of press type stuff that goes around things like blockchain and smart contracts. Mm. Um, We, when we started, we, we started with blockchain being a core part of our tech. Right. And that was in twenty eighteen, in the shadow of the twenty seventeen crash. Nobody wanted to talk about it. You can see the press releases kind of follow, you know, how well Bitcoin is doing because people get excited about it. Um, I think that, you know, when we think about smart contracts, it's not just about, you know, uh, you know, sort of if then clause. Okay, if this happens, pay this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of other layers around payments and sort of integrating from start to finish, um, the entire process. So you're, you're taking in your premiums, monitoring the data, uh, auditing the whole chain, and then deciding that, oh, yeah, this is going to be evaluated to pay uh, the customer needs to pay the $1,000. This gets transferred directly into their bank account. So it's that whole process. And what we have found through a lot of, you know, uh, kind of winding roads is that, there's a lot of institutional blocks to fully implementing the solution. We go, we do have to centralize certain things. It can't be full blockchain, but we're working on it. We're not there yet either.
2: Mm. But
1: I think we're considerably farther along than anything else we've seen in the market. And the problem that tends to happen is the traditional industry is, um, you know, they I think don't understand the full power of this. And those that do don't understand insurance. And so they get stu- the, the, the the true blockchain guys get stuck on the how do you scale this thing? How do you make it regulatorily compatible? How do you get the brokers to sign on? Things like that. So we sort of sit in the middle, and that's why we are a hybrid, because we also need to build a business. And for us, blockchain is a tool, like many other tools, we don't really kind of use it in pitches and stuff as much as you would think. It's just more like this was something that we saw would be very useful for the future, especially as the programs get more and more complex, right? A smart contract that just reads one rainfall data set is, it's, it's fine, but it's not gonna change the world, right? What starts to really bring it to the forefront is one, either you're operating in countries where the trust levels are very low and you know there's, a, there's benefits to having things on chain that can be audited very uh, carefully. Or when you start to run really complex programs with say, uh, which we already are on that path, uh, is imagine a parametric program that needs to take in data from thousands of sensors, sending out data every second, and then deciding, okay, this is the payout using some uh, uh, algorithms. It's in those situations where you're not the only party here, right, as in the insurance company, you will have a reinsurer, you will have the client, you'll have the agent, You have different parties who don't necessarily trust each other, or at least aren't in the same corporate entity, Mm -hmm. all need to verify why a payout was determined Mm -hmm. or how much to pay out. That's an ideal case for blockchain and smart contracts, because what you're looking at is a distributed ledger, a ledger that multiple parties who are not connected to each other can agree on. And so there is a lot of, um, benefits of scale that will come as we go to, you know, you can call it insurance 2.0 products, which are not just, uh, you know, a rainfall data series or a temperature data series, but something that requires monitoring the entire crop season, for example, Mm. to make moral hazard doesn't happen, things like that.
0: Mm. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, the the complexity of the kind of component parts and the, the, you know, the, the value chain of insurance yeah it would would make sense to lend itself very well particularly that kind of broker carrier and we 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 see this all the time like we we operate in the reinsurance space
1: and one of the things that the first reinsurance deal we did immediately it was obvious to us that a distributed ledger would solve so many issues in how um how many frictions there are Mm. right between yeah there's a there's a, a there's a reinsurance company there's a reinsurance mga there is a uh, you know insurance company there's an insurance mga there's a retail agent and then there's the customer yeah. all these parties and documents are being emailed non-stop and the thing is you know you we're not just doing this to make things efficient for the sake of efficiency each layer each person involved um adds tremendous amounts of cost each of these layers is taking you know 10 percent fee by the time you get to the customer you know it's it's crazy what they pay versus what the actual capital is receiving mm-hmm. and these kinds of things are what keep insurance uh, adoption at a low level yeah in the in, in in the urban areas of the west where you have standard car insurance home insurance sure, that'll that that's doing fine in terms of uh, adoption but we start to either leave the us or you start to look at like the climate risks i was mentioning and things like that you know you you're not going to get broad scale adoption unless you can lower the 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 costs of doing
0: business Mm. yeah and and any tool towards that because you know there's a lot of conversations about um you know insurance as a as a form of social good or or you know and how much we do towards that a lot of it's kind of you Know how do you distribute it to more people? How do you make it more accessible to more people? And 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 the most obvious is to get rid of the cost. And and that doesn't mean getting rid of insurance, it means getting rid of like the layers that kind of just add that cost. And simplicity is such a driver towards that.
1: Because then um, it doesn't need to be a charity, right? It needs no. to be a self-sustaining business that allows a larger amount of people to plan. I mean. One of the things that uh, there's a there's a book I read many years ago called Poor Economics, very very good book. But you know, it, it, it talk about how insured our lives are in in you know the developed part of the, the world, where you know your uh, you know glass of water is clean, you know your you know you're, you're covered for health issues, you're covered mm-hmm. for fire in your house, and this and that. These are things that we take for granted and are completely foreign to. You know literally billion plus people mm. like one rainstorm or one drought can set you back um, you know years of income or one health problem in your family and this happens all the time i'm, I'm, I'm from such a country right it's without insurance it's so hard to escape that uh, cycle of uh, poverty too right it's it's a it's an extremely important thing that needs to be solved. And it's not going to be solved if, you know, you have uh, 30, 40, 50% in fees on top of already, um, you know, this kind of oligopolistic uh, industry setup.
0: Sure, sure. I mean, just just touching on that and, you um, yeah, conscious of time, so I'll start to wind things up, but I've got a couple of key questions that I think is uh, about your viewpoint, you know, uh, you, you don't come from the traditional insurance market, you come from traditional more finance markets. I always ask this to people that sort of enter the insurance market later. Is there anything that specifically jumped out at you and surprised you um, when you started looking at the, the the insurance market more closely?
1: Yeah, I would say that, um, and I don't mean this as uh, any sort of uh, dig on the people who work in insurance, but I was shocked at, how behind it was um, mm-hmm. in the way we use risk and in the way that things like contracts are settled both operationally and from a risk management standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the issue is that you, you know, you have um, um, just, you, you have an industry that I think is a lot more protected by regulation than finances anymore, right? There are you know, there's obviously entities in finance that are also overly protected by regulation, but there are also extremely competitive firms like I was um, You know, partly in the hedge fund space, partly in the commodity trade house space and it, I was also at a very big bank. So you could see the differences, but um, Large parts of finance are highly competitive. And if you don't innovate, if you don't come up with new strategies, find new markets. Um, you know, you're going to disappear. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the insurance space, uh, there's a lot more uh, regulatory protection across the whole space. And so what that leads to is, you know, what, what I found was um, there were many aspects of it, which reminded me of how markets I'd heard operated in the 90s. I've actually seen that uh, <laughs> still in uh, middle school, but, uh, you know, my co-founder has been in market since the late 80s. And for him, it was just like dealing in the 90s. Uh, you know, you're, you're sending around faxes and like the amount of steps you need to complete a transaction is just mind boggling. Mm. And when, when I saw how like the risk was managed also, it's very like old style kind of risk management rather than viewing it as a whole sort of big picture. And so that's some of the stuff that we obviously started with addressing is like, let's get operational efficiency and get let's get risk management to be much more uh involved um and pricing and things like that mm. but it was um yeah it was uh, it was definitely very uh, uh very uh, different
0: <laughs> yeah I, it was uh I, I started in in the uk obviously, and going up to london for the first time and then looking at people carrying suitcases and i and going oh what's in the suitcase and they were like oh no that's paper and, and i was like wow <laughs> like it's just come from university i was thinking. I don't even have anything on paper anymore but yeah I mean luckily it's moving forward but it is interesting how much you know the commonality is exactly that but it's interesting to hear your kind of view on risk and um, I wanted to ask you because I know that you you know raising capacity wasn't from kind of traditional insurance markets or reinsurance markets and what's the appetite for this type of opportunity it seems to be quite large because do they view it more this is more akin to a traditional finance product than like insurance. It's a standard loan product.
1: Absolutely. And th- this was part of the, um, you know, the Arbel vision was twofold. One, that the customer will love parametrics. Mm-hmm. And the second was that the capital markets will love parametrics. Yeah. Problem with the same problem that customer faces with traditional indemnity insurance is the same problem capital will face, right? If you have, two, three years to settle claims and you have no idea what the payout is going to be, that's not very comforting to an investor who is used to investing in traditional markets where, okay, there's the stock price and this is the price of corn futures. We, I mean, every single second of the day, you know where your book stands. Mm -hmm. And so to get a broader participation from the non-insurance sector, the parametric space is uh, essential. And when you look at what a parametric insurance contract is it's almost identical to similar derivatives it's like a rainfall derivative or a temperature derivative in fact a lot of our business is done in derivative form mm-hmm. where possible because the costs are much lower of operating so the the the, the capacity we lined up was non traditional and you know we think that there's a you know this year has almost been a demonstration of what the returns can be and they've been great but also the biggest thing that you know when i was at uh, hedge funds and uh, these trading outfits you're always looking for uncorrelated risk
2: mm-hmm.
1: and risk based on you know uh, rainfall in a county of iowa or temperature in atlanta or things like that are some of the least correlated um you know uh, risks that are out there. It doesn't matter what the Federal Reserve is talking about, temperature will do what temperature does. So mm-hmm. you, you basically create a new asset class that now non-traditional uh, sources love. That flow of capital is essential to, again, pushing down prices and broadening the adoption. So, you know, as I mentioned, we've, we've had tremendous growth uh, over the last year and part of that has been lining up the capacity and now we've completed the circle. Right. We can get data, build a product, deploy it, and cover the risk all in, in-house essentially. Yeah. And what that enables is much, much more rapid deployment products, but also the deployment of much more um, complex products that really get down to what the customer is facing in terms of risk. Mm -hmm. we don't have a very long process to like say okay this is what the product looks like now you know going through the bureaucratic hurdles of when you deal with
0: a major insurance company yeah yeah it's huge and i think some of those problems have been really coming up i mean you know uh, i know it's a very different thing but looking at people trying to raise capacities for mgas um it's been incredibly difficult um but mainly just because of the process the time scales um, and then, you know, you've got a window of opportunity to get out there and it hasn't happened. Um, so I've got two very quick last questions. Well, they might be quick. We don't know. But am um, uh, I right. you founded this business. Uh, I think there's a number of partners, but one of them is your brother. Um, you. uh,
1: so there's four uh, co-founders and one well, of them uh, happens to be my brother.
0: <laughs> I was wondering if there's any unique um, challenges with working with a brother or is it, or is it all... <laughs> Happy families at T-Marvel. <laughs> uh, I,
1: I, you know, I, we always did all sorts of uh, deals together and things yeah. like that. Um, it helps that he's uh, seven years younger. So it's a big gap. So we don't enha- we never had like what you would call sibling rivalry or but, anything like that.
2: Um,
1: and, you know, we just uh, hang out anyway. So it, it works pretty well. And we're always, we were always getting involved well in different deals together for like investing and things like that. And yeah. So
0: it works yeah. out well. But, um, but but you said you're the older brother. So if, if all else fails, you can just pull out the older brother card.
1: Exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> that always works.
0: <laughs> uh, and like
1: my other co-founder, uh, one of them I've known for 10 years. So it's a tight group, and it helps a lot. I mean, we all were, you know, obviously working, uh, you know, uh, without uh, much, uh, you can call it compensation or things like that for a while. And, you know, we, I think that helps a lot though is this inherent trust we have in each other's abilities. And we all bring, probably most importantly, we all bring very different things to the table, you know. Um, And uh, the age range in our co-founding group is, I mean, on the order of 30, 40 years. So you get old school, uh, you know, wisdom and, you know, coding skills, and I sit somewhere in the middle, I coded a bunch, but I also worked uh, a lot in the commodity business sector and things like that. And so, it, you know, we all bring different, uh, very unique skills to the table that helps um, to make sure that we're, we don't have any gaps in what we need to get done. Because something like Arbol just requires a huge number of uh, skill sets, because you, you, you're touching on regulatory Uh, legal stuff Um, obviously the insurance and derivatives industries but also it's it's quite an effort on the coding side and the pricing engine so everyone needs to bring um, very different skill sets at the table
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and that that seems to be the ongoing theme. every time I ask that it's like as long as everyone has a defined role and they bring their or they bring their different strengths and you know then then it gets there it seems to be only a problem when you know, they've got similar. Because I've had some people who have had the good idea, but they might both be essentially salespeople, for example. Yeah, and yeah, and then, yeah. then you get conflict. Exactly. exactly. Um, but my last question, and uh, I'll, I'll let you go, is obviously you, you you oversubscribed on your fundraising. I know earlier in the year, and obviously you grew you, grew, you know you grew incredibly quickly. Um, how do you maintain culture? And and I'm now starting to evolve this question because I'm, I'm I'm asking whether you do maintain culture or you just, you, you let it grow. Um, yeah, I
1: have, I, I tend to have a very sort of organic evolutionary view of these things. You know, I think that what I try to instill is, um, and all of us do is we work very hard. We make sure that results, uh, you know, are delivered and, you know, I think a, a culture is that of teamwork and making sure that, again, we bring all the necessary, because almost nothing in our is doable by a single person, just because we do need the input of uh, every aspect, what I mentioned from yeah. regulations to coding. And so the goal is to foster, you know, uh, collaboration amongst the different teams. And, uh, you know, I, we don't have a, you know, we don't have like the, the 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 standard ego trips i think we've, everyone is very collaborative and we've always made sure of that but beyond that i let these things evolve um mm-hmm. you know obviously if you see a problem then you have to intervene but i haven't had that luckily and uh you know the true culture of our is that yeah we, we work hard and you know we really make sure to uh, do everything with as much excellence as Uh, possible you know if you do something do it really really well and yeah beyond that I I don't know if um, you know there's not I I don't I've never agreed with the whole you know forcing corporate culture down people's throats Um, we don't even have defined work hours or vacations you know everyone is free to take off whenever they want come into the office don't come in it's fine it's been always a very um, almost you know a decentralized approach and that you know Goes back to our, I guess, our uh, blockchain view of the world, but we um, we have a very decentralized uh, system, and anyone, if they have a good idea, it's they're it's it's um, it, it, they're open to follow it along, and we actually have that all the time. And people mm-hmm. have different ideas about because we also operate in a in a in a in a space where there's so much uh, room for creative thinking, like oh yeah, maybe snow uh, snowplow companies could use snow insurance, or, you know, um, maybe, uh, you know, uh, so-and-so type of business would love uh, rainfall insurance. Mm-hmm. And we're all welcome to sort of grow that uh, idea together. So, and, you know, many things don't work out. That's also fine. It's a, it's a tough business, but we try to make sure that everyone is given a level playing field It's very flat structure. Um, we're all on Slack at different random hours of the night or day. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, people also maintain uh, very different hours. <laughs> like yeah. some team members are up at like 1 a.m. and others are, you know, nine to five type uh, uh, hours. But uh, it's, it all works very well because um, we, that's the culture is, you know, um, first and foremost, um, you know, do something. If you do something, do it to the max uh, possible excellence
0: yeah lovely and that is a perfect um, that is a perfect leadership and insurance class uh, thing to end on so we're gonna we're gonna call it there Sue, thank you so much for your time I really really appreciate you taking the time out um I, f- I think it's fascinating what you're doing I love the space and um, I want to keep you know keep keep involved and keep listening to what you're doing thank you
1: for sure thank you for having me and
0: As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com, or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email at, alex at I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope to see you back next week.
2: Thank you.